Through Grief podcast, where we interview individuals just like you who are dealing with their own journey from loss to growth, along with mental health experts, growth guides, all with the purpose of helping you heal better, improve mind, body, and spirit, and find your new purpose from the loss and the tragedy that you have unfortunately experienced. Hi, I'm Tom Pasello. I'm your host, a growth evangelist, as well as a fellow widower. I lost my beautiful bride of 19 years, Judy, some five years ago. I have a really special guest, and she is the author of this book, A Heart Returned, and it's Juliet Brisman. Uh, Juliet's a licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT. She's the author of this book, and it's the story of the life and family she created with her husband, Mark, and the tragic loss that she did experience on September 11th, and the journey of the challenges she experienced, the miracles, and the purpose that followed. Welcome, Juliet. Wow, thank you, Tom. That's a, a very nice introduction. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. I absolutely love origin stories. Tell me how you and Mark met. Well, it was like many of those things that uh, were never supposed to happen. Um, a friend and I had made plans. I had just finished, graduated high school and it was the summer, early in the summer. And uh, she really wanted to go out. And for whatever reason, I wasn't feeling it. I worked all day. It was a rainy night and just, and she wasn't, wasn't having it. You know how a lot of friends, they, they're determined. So she was determined to go out. I was dragged along. Um, and that's sort of the beginning of the story. Uh, we went to a very popular club. If anybody is from Long Island, uh, it was called Uncle Sam's or Spit, depending on the, the night or the, the, the year that you were there. It was a very popular hangout for the, you know, the 18 and over. I think it was 21 and over on certain nights. So that's where we headed. And um, she was there to track down a guy she liked. This is before social media. So you had to kind of follow and see if people showed up at places. This was in the 80s. So, um, you know, we went to this very empty club and no one was there. And I was thinking, okay, we'll be out of here shortly. And um, my husband, Mark, and his friend were there. And they just sort of caught my attention. And I was, was really fixated on them. Uh, not because necessarily I was, you know, drawn or, but I was just, you know, something made me, made me look and I was staring for, I think a bit too long. And they, you know, he saw that and thought that was an invite to come over. So that's how we started to talk. And uh, we realized that we had, a, you know, people in common living in, you know, uh, towns nearby. I was from East Meadow. He was from Merrick. And, um, you know, we talked about people we knew in common and had a nice conversation. I thought that was it. It was friendly. It wasn't really flirtatious, uh, really. Um, and uh, we, we went to leave. My friends and I went to leave. I said bye. And, and I thought that was it. But we, we got again, like a, a fate twist of fate. We, we mm -hmm. didn't leave right away. So we saw someone we knew, we started talking and he kind of caught up to me right before I was out the door and said, you know, can I have your number? I want to call you sometime. And I said, yes. And uh, that's kind of how, that's how we met. That was the night we met. That's amazing. And I was a little further out on the island living at that time in Long Island. And I did go some nights to spit <laughs> in Uncle Sam's. So right. it was definitely the popular place. Right. In the book, you actually have a picture. Mark had saved the number that you gave him on a card. Yes. Yes. Wow. It was a, a tiny scrap. I think I must have had a little tiny piece of paper 
and I wrote my, uh, my name on it. And, um, he just like everything else, he saved it. And he, um, I guess, uh, you know, I had it with his things and I still have it. And there's a picture of it in the book, um, of, of my number. And, uh, yeah, we have that. And, uh, the first picture we ever took in a photo booth on our first date at Nunley's, another popular Long Island place that people on Sunrise Highway, if you're from Nassau County, you would know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that. I have a lot of, you know, mementos, which are, some of them are in the book. That's absolutely amazing. And then you built an amazing life together as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, uh, that's also detailed in the book, sort of the, we admitted I was 18, he was 19. So of course, uh, you know, that's very young even then. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't necessarily on board with having a serious boyfriend and a, you know, a forever person. And Mark was really always very mature and very sure of himself and sure of the relationship. So it really took me many years to sort of catch up to him. So we, I sort of detailed that process in the book because I had said to him, look, I'm going to college. He was going to a different school. It was going to be a long distance thing. And I, you know, I really, by the end of the summer, I was very, uh, I was attached, but I wasn't necessarily, you know, sold. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Um, but he always, that's the amazing thing about our, our relationship is that he always was very sure. You know, he always seemed to be very sure about us and, but he was patient and very good about, you know, letting me kind of, you know, find my, my feet, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, that was really, I really, that said a lot about him as a person that, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, he was, of course, would be a little upset about, you know, the idea that, you know, we were at different schools and was worried, but, uh, he didn't really let on that much. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I always am amazed at how kind of fragile it can be relationship wise that like, you know, you might not have gone out that night. It was rainy. You didn't feel like it, or, you know, you guys were young. You might not have stuck it out, but as a result of that, some beautiful children, right? Tell us about the family that you, you basically became out of Mark. Yeah. Yep. Well, we, um, we got married in 1993 and our daughter, Rachel, was born in 1996, uh, followed by William in 1999. Mm-hmm. And um, we we were lucky. We had one of each and uh, wasn't necessarily sure if our family was complete. But at the time we um, we were, you know, raising our kids. I was a stay at home mom. He worked in the city as an attorney uh, at um eventually down at the world trade, but on uh, lower Manhattan at first. Yeah. And our lives were just really very, um, wonderful and, uh, you know, almost like storybook. There was no real you know, small issues here and there, but, um, we really created our life together and, and grew as a family and had our perspective roles, very traditional, so to speak. And, um, that's really, uh, you know, we really, built a very, a nice family life. Yeah. And then there was that absolutely horrible, tragic day, September 11th. Talk a little bit about that as, as you can. And I know it's, it's probably tough, even this many years later, Juliet to share, because I know I think back of where I was right. in the day that I was having, it was launching a new company with my late wife. Uh, that day, our press release mm-hmm. was ready to go out and we had to pull it back, but that's nothing compared to the- right tragic events and the uncertainty, especially that you were experiencing. Right. Well, for me, that really was, um, 
a tragedy, but it was more of the the protective bubble that finally around my life that had burst. And yeah. I talk about that in the book. I really had a very sheltered and very, um, you know, my upbringing and my family was really, uh, you know, really never had anything significant happen. So this was really, you know, a huge thing. And um, so that's one part of it. The second piece of this was just like the, the day we met, there were a lot of things that happened that I detail in the book that literally helped me get through it. Things, you know, twists of fate, like for instance, my sister who lives in Boston, my only sister happened to be visiting. It was a midweek and she happened to come in uh, with her son and her two-year-old. My kids had literally just started school, but she said, okay, I'll visit. I'll stay for a couple of days. So I wasn't by myself. She was, she was at the house. So I was yeah. really fortunate that someone just happened to be with me. Um, for, for that time period. Um, but uh, there was there was a lot of um, really uncertainty in terms of was he, uh, people had seen him, was he there, was he not? So that really made the day a lot more emotional where there was a lot of people that were in the office. Most people got out. Uh, there was only five from the whole office of however many people, there were dozens of people that morning. So the, the impression was that he was alive or he had gotten out, but we just hadn't heard from him. So there was yeah. a lot of waiting and worrying. contact and, hospitals and things like that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of that, uh, especially in the hours um, at the beginning of that day. Um, so basically by the time it was the evening, I had a gut feeling. I had not heard from him, mm -hmm. but people were still hopeful you'll hear from him. Maybe he's at a hospital, maybe he's hurt. But I knew in my heart, I said, this is, I knew him and I knew he would somehow wheedle a phone out of somebody. He would get a phone call. That was just mm -hmm. the type of person. So I knew by five, six o'clock that um, I knew that he wasn't coming back. I didn't have you know, assurance of it, but I, I knew at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of had to start picking up the pieces literally from that, that day. Talk about... Uh, you know, certainly a condensed version and you go into it a lot in the book, but talk about that, the children that had certainly a lot of questions and a lot of feelings mm -hmm. that you thought they would never experience in their life. Talk, talk about the aftermath. Okay. Well, that, that for both for people that are widowed and have children, it's, it's like a blessing and, and it's a challenge at the same time, mm -hmm. because you have someone other than yourself to think about, right? Um, so that, sort of for many people, it prevents you from falling apart. It, it, it sort of propels you to say, okay, I got to get a hold of myself and figure this out. Mm -hmm. So there's really not a lot of time for self-pity or feeling sorry for yourself. You have to, you're kind of in go mode. So that's kind of how I was um, in the days sort of following. But I was also kind of numb and in shock. And I really, mm -hmm. except for that first evening when I mentioned that I really had, you know, was an emotional kind of uh, outpouring, but I really held it together almost. And now that I look back on it, it was, it was almost stoic and it was, it was almost, um, it was really in shock and people that had seen me, family members, people in the community misread that. And I think that's something people do with widowed people that their responses can vary so much. Mm -hmm. And people, mistook that as that I was cold or that I was unfeeling or that I was detached or there was something yeah. wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And at the time I even realized it when I would interact with people and they would be crying and they would be emotional. And I'd watch this almost like an, you know, an outsider saying, wow, they're very upset. Look at this. Like, wow. And I didn't know what to do with it. I said, they are probably 
expecting the same for me. I didn't know what they expected, but I, I found it like surreal almost in the weeks yeah. and days after that they were more upset seemingly than I was, right? Or I wasn't in touch with that part of myself. Yeah, so that was very curious to me. Yeah. Yeah. Very curious thing. And now that I'm a, you know, a, a therapist, I understand more about it, but the time I didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely fell into that too, Juliet, where I, you know, as a man, for me, a lot of men, they put on that really tough stoic mask. Hey, I'm going to be the rock of this family. And it does get right. misinterpreted. My girls, I don't think re they realized until I started this mission and this purpose, I don't think they realized how hard it hit me and how much it right. hurt because I wasn't crying. I was trying to be that strong. Okay, got to pick the business up. It was neglected for a little while. Got to pick up the family and go on. And like you said, you go into go mode. I know for me though, Juliet, that that was not only hurt some of the relationships in my life where I had to kind of reestablish that yes, dad did love mom, yes, dad did care. But it also meant that my healing process was delayed dramatically because I really wasn't healing when I had that stoic mass up gone. Um, right. I wasn't in touch with that part of my feelings because I needed to right. be tough, quote unquote, for everyone else. Right. But that is part of healing, Tom. It's adaptive yeah. and it's protective. We don't realize that we think, oh, it's delayed and you're avoiding it. But no, for, for many people, that is a that is what you need. Your body, your emotions, that's what you need at the time until yeah. you can deal with or process what's coming. So um, that's okay. I've realized that, that there's sort of no, no guidebook, but that is one of the things that people do. Uh, it just isn't, isn't realistic if that's, if that's kind of, you keep that kind of stoicism, you know, indefinitely. Yeah. But I think, right, at the beginning, whatever that means, the beginning could be months, could be weeks, that, that is, um, that's part of, 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 your, of your grieving. That's part of what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but people on the outside misinterpret it. I want to talk about for a second, um, I'll hold up the book for those who are on video and there's a heart returned is the name of the book. And there's a picture of a ring in the shape of a heart. Mm -hmm. Talk about this miracle. Oh my goodness. You have it there. I'm going to cry. Juliet. <laughs> All right. You've got me crying. <laughs> You know, talk, talk about sometimes I cry when I, when I show it yeah. to people, I can too. Um, <laughs> so that, um, the story, it, it basically in 2004, so this was almost three years after. So this happened in August. It was the summer. At that point, I had kind of obviously done a lot of healing. I, I established a new normal, but I was feeling really kind of detached and away from him. I was feeling a little sorry for myself. I was kind of, this is my life. And you know, it was just really a kind of a down uh, time for me. Yeah. And um, I get a phone call from uh, a Michael Henley, who was from the New York uh, Police Department Evidence and Property Control Department. And he called me up. And uh, this was odd because I had you know, in the days after I had heard I had a, gotten a lot of phone calls from police and investigators about, you know, personal effects that were on him, identifiers, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was weird to get a phone call. And um I thought possibly I, they were asking more questions, but he called me and he said, um, "I want you to tell me again what were the th what were some of the things that your you were your husband was wearing." And I said he was wearing a a gold uh, what they call a mezuzah, which is a Jewish kind of uh, you know medallion, and it was very intricate. And I thought perhaps if I described that in detail, I could get that back because it's a very unique piece. Uh, a black watch, just a 
maybe a Seiko, something non, uh, you know, just a regular watch and a, uh, a gold wedding band that was very plain, but it had a hammered edge and no inscription. Those were the three things he was wearing. So uh, I explained to him those three things again. And he says, well, I just matter of fact, he says, well, I have it, but the wedding ring, just like that. He says, I yeah. have it. So I remember thinking, no, he doesn't, right? Yeah, can't he's, right. He's, he can't, he can't have it, but he was, he was pretty insistent. And he says, followed up. He said, well, when can you come down and, and take a look or come get it or whatever? He said, it was just really very um, matter of fact and sure. Right. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down there. So I arranged uh, to go down to the city. I took my son out of preschool, my daughter who was, I don't know, first grade, uh, maybe it was camp. It was probably August. So I said, let me leave her where she is. I'll take him along. Cause I don't want to go alone. And I, mm -hmm. you know, and I know I'm not going to find it. So it'll just be a day in the city. That's yeah. kind of what I thought. So we go down there. Sure enough, as soon as I, I got there, I had my, my ring with me as a, as a match, right. I had it. Mm -hmm. Um, and sure enough, he, um, he was right. He was right. He had it. Um, but that is is part of the amazing story, and I I'm, I know I'm doing spoilers here, but uh, it's it's really about the story behind it. I said this is you know three years later, and I'm getting this back now. Uh, do you have any any information about how the ring was found or or what was the details? He says yeah, and he looks at the notes and he says yeah, it was found uh, pretty shortly after, in the days after, you know, kind of in plain sight. Someone picked it up. So it was, it was there, it was, they when, had it. Yeah, waiting. when you think of the amount of just debris and rubble and just, just that fact that it was just there in plain sight right. and then, and then that it was found right away, but then not right. given back to you until so much time later, almost when you needed it most, right? Yes, that's, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah. I know part of where you are now and the new you and the new purpose you found out of this, I think this is so important. Um, you started to get help and there were many organizations that were set up to help the, the widows and widowers uh, in the aftermath. Talk a little bit about the influence of that and then kind of how you found your way down this path because you weren't by education the first time around in the mental health field, right? Correct. Not only was I not in the mental health field, I had no experience. I hadn't gone to therapy. My family almost didn't believe in it. It's sort of the airing dirty laundry, don't tell people your business. You know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was kind of, it's typical of certain cultures and ethnicities. It's just not something you do. So I really had no experience about it, um, didn't know what to make of it and avoided it really at the very beginning, I said, I have a, I had, luckily I had a lot of support, good community. I really didn't need it. I stayed sort of with the people I knew and uh, felt comfortable with, and they helped uh, until they didn't, you know, you get to a point where people can only do so much for you. And then there are things that only through professionals can you process or, or groups or peers. So at, there was a point in time, and I detailed in the book that really all of my resources kind of, um, kind of dried up or weren't really as helpful as they could be. So I decided to, you know, seek, seek therapy for myself, seek therapy for uh, the kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I really was surprised by, um, you know, what, what I had found. I was pleasantly surprised. And um, that was from the professional uh, point of view, but also from the, the peer 
led groups for, for widows and for, you know, helping children. And many of those people were volunteers. They had been trained facilitators. And I was just so amazed by the healing and the, the effort and just how much they could do for us as, as families and as individuals that, um, I just remember putting that in my sort of bank in my memory and saying, well, one of these days, you know, maybe, maybe. Um, and sure enough, that day came about, I don't know, 10 years later or whatever it was, I called up the director, it was a different person. And I said, we were family members and I'd like to help. And uh, I remember her response was, wow, we've never had anyone call before. I said, huh. really? You know, <laughs> I was the first person that called and said, I was a client and now I want to I want yeah. to be a volunteer. So that's kind of how, how it got started. Um, it was an agency in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, called the Den for Grieving Kids. They're still in existence. They still help families. And uh, I was uh, placed in the school district. They had a school program during, during school hours. They'd pull kids out. That most of them who had lost a parent, sometimes it was a grandparent or someone significant. And I learned sort of how to uh, facilitate or sit with people that had been um, you know, grieving themselves. And that's kind of how, how it got started for me. Yeah. And then you went back to school and got your degree in, in mental health and licensed and then started a practice, right? Yes. Yes. Um, that was, like I said, by chance, I wasn't much of a student. I'll admit that I, when I graduated, I said, I'm never going back again. This is it for me back you know, in the day. And sure enough, the, the encouragement of other people that you'd facilitate as a volunteer with other people, they didn't put you by yourself. So I would be with other young you know, interns and in social work programs, and they all thought, oh, you must be a school psychologist, or you're this or that. I said, no, I'm just, you know, I'm a mom and a volunteer. So they gave me the encouragement. I didn't have it in myself, yeah. even though I knew I loved what I was doing. I didn't have the encourage the, the, uh, the self-confidence to do it. And they kind of pushed me, Hey, why don't you, why don't you try it? Why don't you sit in on a class or two? And, um, so I did very sheepishly and said, Oh, this is not going to work. And sure enough, I, before I knew it, I was signed up <laughs> and, um, I really, I was shocked and I was so, so involved in learning. It just, everything is really based on the time in your life and the, and when it makes sense and your development and what, you know, where you are. And it just was the right time. And, um, and I, I love it. I've been doing this for a couple of years and um, I, I just love working. Obviously, I don't just work with grief, but any life cycle changes, mm -hmm. um, transitions in people's lives, all kinds of things. You know, it's it, a lot of it is tied to loss. It's not just death. It's loss of, you know, a relationship, a job, um, yeah. you know, physical abilities. You know, there's many types of losses. Uh, yeah. So loss and hurt. There's certainly no shortage of it when we start to right. talk to other people and our experiences and sharing them, I know, can really help to bring that out in other people. And it really was an important part of my healing process was turning my loss into purpose and into service. And I really don't feel like I healed completely until then. Did you have that same kind of feeling and that? Um, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. I almost felt like the purpose maybe was there, but the, it was almost like the giving back. Mm -hmm. I felt like people had given us so much and I know how valuable that is for people that are searching, especially, you know, you resource your family, your friends, but you don't want to burden them. And having those either volunteers or professionals, that that just does so much. It does so much and it's so helpful that I, I kind of wanted to be a part of that. That was that was part of what I was thinking. And the second thing, believe it or not, was I wanted to be a, a role model for my kids because 
their dad was. He was the professional. He was the guy who did this and that. And I felt as though, yeah, I'm their mother, but I really didn't feel like I had this defined role. And part of that was I wanted them to see, you know, what that looked like, you know, what that looked like to have a mother that was, you know, that was working, that was active, that was volunteering. I did it at first for them. And then once I got a hold, it got a hold of me, I was like, oh, I need this. This yeah. is for me too. This is not just to show them, you know? Yeah. Uh, so and it you was, know you're helping other people, but it really does help you too, is what I found. Yes. Is I get so much out of every interaction um, and in helping, but it really helps to reveal some things that maybe I haven't completely worked on when you work right, with Tom. someone else who needs work. Yeah. That's right. It's a, it's a two, ideally it's a two way street and we're all, we're all students. I always say, I'm not, I didn't invent the wheel. I'm just passing information and you, you can pass the information and we're all kind of learning and trading uh, secrets and tips. And that's what we're doing. When, when you started your practice and certainly from your own experience, what are three areas that you think are the most challenging to the grieving widow or widower? What are you seeing in your practice and from your own experience? Mm -hmm. I think that um, there's a tendency, especially early in the process, to panic, right? People really, once they kind of get over the shock or the grief or the initial kind of overwhelming feelings, there's a tendency to sort of reach for things quickly, right? Yeah. Whether they, uh, I'm going to sell the house and move, or I'm going to, get another relationship real quick because I can't do this myself or, you know, people tend to um, get very scared you mm -hmm. know, that their life is the way they see it is over, right? They'll never have any joy. They'll never have any, uh, you know, security, whatever they're thinking, they really um, bury that with the person that died. So mm -hmm. I think that's number one is kind of figuring out, you know, who that person is, who you are, and, mm -hmm. and that you're still there somehow and kind of reclaiming that. So that's, that's kind of the first thing that, that I try to help people work yeah, on. Finding self um, again, right? In, yeah, right, finding so self and getting self. grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Getting yourself grounded without kind of doing anything uh, super uh, extreme mm -hmm. or, or or panicking and doing something, right? So yeah. that's number one. Um, the second thing is is to really try to have a flexible mindset, which is which is tough for a lot of us, right? Mm -hmm. We have a fixed mindset. I'm not that type of person. I could never, whatever it is, do this, go back to school, uh, mm -hmm. work outside the home, or uh, whatever you're thinking, right? Travel by myself, right? You have this fixed mindset. So it's really trying to kind of encourage people to have a flexible mindset, right? Because you're you're only you are what you think is that mentality, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of getting them to really sort of stretch their limitations possibly and say, okay, I can, maybe I can be open-minded in terms of my future, my interests, those types of things to be flexible, right? And not be, not have a fixed mindset if there's someone like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's really the second thing. And um, really to, to sort of also help with anxiety and forecasting the future and trying to keep people present and mindful. Mm -hmm. Right. Once we once we get a hold of, you know, that anxiety, which is crystal ball reading, I call it. Right. This is what the future looks like. And it looks pretty bad or it looks pretty lonely. Right. Don't do that. Right. Yeah. Stay. Worry about this week. Worry about today. Don't don't forecast. Yeah. Right? It's really easy. Your anxiety yeah. We project right. kind Try of the what we we're seeing today as the future. Right. 
um, were kind of linear that way, as opposed to, you know, when we think about what our lives were like 10 years ago or 10 years before that or 10 years before that, how different it all is, right? And there's no way you could predict or project. Right. Even if things are going well, you can't predict, right? Yeah. You can't predict right. if you're going to land that job or or you're going to, you know, get that house that you put a bid on or anything. You know, you really can't. So it's the same thing with your life, right? You may want certain things to happen. You may you can be prepared, but at certain point, um, you really don't have control over a lot of things. And uh, that's the root of anxiety is trying to, you know, make that is writing the script, writing the end of the story. Don't yeah. don't do that. Yeah, our brains to survive, though, are these prediction machines, though, right? So they're kind of wired that way to do it. And you do have to yeah. kind of get control of it and bring yourself into the now and make sure that you're mm -hmm. staying there, That's not true. going into the regrets and the guilt of the past. We all have those about the one we lost or projecting the sadness and the loss you're experiencing today into the future. Right, exactly. Julia, I know that afterwards... Um, especially when something happens so suddenly as what you experienced, it, it could be real easy to lose your faith, be incredibly angry at God. Many widowers like counsel, they'll say flat out, I'm angry at God. I can't believe that this is what he wanted for me and intended for me. You didn't do that. You really held strong to your faith as you document. Talk about that and the importance of faith in healing and some of the, you know, and I think some of the miracles you experienced have certainly helped to reinforce that. Yes, exactly. Well, this also was a growing, like everything else that I, I talk about in the book, it's really such a, I really take you to where I was as a person and, and, and sort of where I am now to some degree. And spirituality really wasn't a big factor, wasn't a really large factor in my life until after. And I really didn't know what my, what my um, feeling was toward God or, or fate or religion. I, I wasn't sure. But the meetings that I had went to and the people, like you said, with very strong feelings about, you know, how they felt and how disillusioned they were. I remember seeing those people and saying, wow, you know, being really affected and saying, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I feel that way. I don't know if I could feel that way. So that yeah. made me think, well, what if I don't feel that way, if I'm not angry at, at, at God or if I'm not uh, thinking my life is it, whatever it was, if I didn't have a negative feeling about it, what, what feeling do I have? Like, how mm -hmm. do I feel about it? So I started to explore it. I started to explore the opposite, the people that are connected and have this faith. Does that help them? Are, are they in a better place? So I actually kind of, because of that experience, went the opposite. So let me, let me see, let me explore. Mm -hmm. And I did find that, wow, this, this does help other people. This seems to be a safe place. It seems to be a happy place. It seems to be a healing place. Let me try that. So yeah. it was really by sort of trial and error almost. And now that I'm a therapist and there's been studies and research that people that have a strong spiritual base, and that's not even religion, just spiritual, which is could be slightly different. They say that that's really sort of the key to kind of overall happiness and overall contentment, right? Not even with loss. So having that as a key or, or exploring what that means to you, right? How spirituality or religion or both fits into your, into your healing or into your life is something that if clients do have that, I encourage them to explore it. Or if it's something they haven't th thought about, we, we talk about it, right? Yeah. So I, I don't ever tell people, go, go do it, you know, go, go to services or go to, but, but for people that have that core or have lost it or are curious about it, yeah, we definitely, we definitely explore that. 
I had it when I was young as a teenager and didn't grow up in a great town in Long Island. And it really helped me through. It helped me. I don't think I would have survived, honestly, to get through okay. that to where I am today. Then I lost it completely. And through the whole illness process, we went through a 10-year battle mm -hmm. with cancer on and off. And um, it really waned during that time even more. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, I definitely felt like something was missing, kind of like you did. And I went on my own journey. And in particular, about a year and a half, two years ago, I really found my faith again. And I don't think my healing was complete, just like it wasn't complete until I had service and, and found purpose in service. I also don't think it was complete, complete until I found purpose and faith and could transcend a lot of the sadness by leveraging that. And so um, right. I loved reading that about your own journey in the book as well. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, just sharing those stories, like you said, it's each person's individual grief journey and each individual's person's faith journey as well. And I don't think you can push it on anyone, but I think sharing right. some of our experiences can maybe help people to revisit that and saying, you know what, hanging on to this anger with uh, the divine might not be a great way to go through life. And that takes me to my favorite quote from the book, and you close the book with it. Uh, we must translate pain into action and tears into growth. Talk about that quote, what it means to you, who it came from. Yes, uh, that is uh, Rabbi Schneerson, which if anybody is familiar with the Chabad movement, he was the head of the Lubavitcher movement. Um, he was someone who was... Uh, of all religions, people sought him out. He, I think he died, not an expert, I think about 1980 in the, or in the, the 90s, early 90s, I'm not 100% sure, but he was really a, considered a real um, influential person in terms of uh, how to live one's life. And it, the book is, is, it's from, the quote is from, from a meaningful life, right? Okay. And it was written by somebody who was a, a scholar and, and, really uh, worked with him closely and wrote, wrote about his, his feelings about different things, different topics, different subjects. And um, that's another thing. You'll have to read the book. I'm not going to spoil that. A miracle about how the book came into my possession. Uh, there's a couple of other things that are really very uh, kind of um, not you know, more than coincidental. And, and that's where that book comes into my life. And uh, the quote is really something that inspired me that, um, you know, pain can be translated into, into action, right? It's, it's, it's something that, you know, is um, within us and it could, it could eat away at us or it could be something we use toward healing or purpose. And um, that's really, I think it's a very fitting quote in terms of how I, how I live my life and how I run my practice, how I parent, how I, you know, my relationships in general. Yeah. And I also love how you close it out with the story of where everyone is now, because, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of taken us along the journey, but I love seeing where the children were at and how successful they have turned out to be and wonderful they've turned out to be. So blessings there. Definitely. What's the one you. thing you'd like to leave with our widowers, our growth warriors with today, Juliet? Mm hmm. Oh, that's a really, uh, I say that they should focus on their emotional health and stability, right? Do the, do those things first, focus on that and get comfortable with who you are, right? Before you go forward in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Get, get comfortable with yourself. Um, 
as as the person that um, you know now is on this journey without your without your partner, right? I think that's really finding finding looking inward, finding who you are, um, and and you can even use the values of that person, you know, even though they're not there. And that's really what's helped me in my journey is really taking Mark along with me sort of and saying, okay, what would he think? And, and how would he, what would he do? Cause you're doing, mm -hmm. you're making decisions and you're doing things by yourself. So uh, to really kind of try to bring that person, uh, even though they're gone, try to figure out where the relationship is. I think that's what I mean to say, figure out how you can keep that relationship with, with that person even though they're not here and it's changed, but that's up to you sort of how it's going to look. I love it. So those are the two things. A heart returned. Juliet, thank you so much. We'll include the book in our recommended book section and uh, amazon.com, your local bookstore. Uh, they're available and uh, I highly recommend it. It's just a beautiful story of love and of challenge and of healing and of new purpose. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening to our Growth Through Grief podcast. If you like this episode, hit the like button. Please subscribe so you can stay up to date. And until next time, my growth warriors, keep growing.